Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Lama Rod Owens. Lama Rod is an author, activist, and authorized Lama or Buddhist teacher in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism. He completed the traditional three-year silent retreat to earn his title as a Lama, and he holds a Master of Divinity degree in Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School, where he focused on the intersection of social change, identity, and spiritual practice. Lama Rod is also one of the featured presenters in a new 30-part free online series from Sounds True called The Wisdom of the Body. It runs from August 12th through the 21st and features presenters such as Sean Korn, Carolyn Mace, Peter Levine, Reggie Ray, and others. We hope you'll join us. You can learn more about The Wisdom of the Body, free 10-day series starting on August 12th at SoundsTrue.com. Get ready to listen to my conversation with Lama Rod, who is really a next-generation Vajrayana teacher, opening wide the doors of inclusivity and making the Dharma fresh by bringing his whole entire queer Black self to his role as a contemporary teacher. To begin here, Lama Rod, I want to thank you for being part of this podcast and also being part of Sounds True's new Wisdom of the Body 10-part series that launches on August 12th. And I wanted to start off talking a bit about Vajrayana Buddhism and the teachings within Vajrayana Buddhism that relate to the body. But before we get there, I just want to introduce our listeners of Insights at the Edge to Vajrayana Buddhism. And with that, I'm going to throw it over to you and ask you, what is the essence of the Vajrayana teachings from your point of view? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, Tammy, for having me on. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, So the Vajrayana, Vajrayana Buddhism, um, is an expression or um, a tradition of tantric Buddhism. And Tantra um, began um, really in Southeast Asia, roughly. Um, 
And Tantra is a system um, that I would say is a system of very swift, rapid enlightenment. Um, coming into contact with our uh, uh, innate wisdom mind or our innate um, Buddhahood um, in a way that utilizes uh, the skillful means of mantras and energy and yoga um, and guru devotion. Um, and these principles um, practice both in Hindu tantric communities as well as in Buddhist tantric communities. But these principles were also transferred into Buddhist tantra and um, took root um, within um, the primary country of Tibet. Um, and Ladakh and several other countries. Um, but uh, Vajrayana, um, particularly in the Buddhist Vajrayana, is defined as the swift path, the diamond vehicle, the swift path towards enlightenment through the skillful means um, of the principles that I just mentioned um, before. What makes it particularly swift and rapid? I imagine a lot of Insights at the Edge listeners are very intrigued, and they're interested in that. Let's accelerate. Mm-hmm. What, what does that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I, I feel as if it's the focus on the body. It's the focus on subtle energy of the body and learning how to channel and work with um, subtle energies like prana, for instance. And prana is life force energy. Sometimes we call it chi um, in Tibetan Buddhism or Vajrayana, we call it uh, Lung. Um, so this energy um, is directly related to um, how our bodies and our minds um, are um, within union right now in this moment. So to have an agency over our prana means that we begin to impact our life force and the quality um, of our awareness. So the stronger our prana becomes, the more likely we begin to experience um, liberation. So many of our practices within Vajrayana Buddhism um, are Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism is an expression of Vajrayana. Um, A lot of our practices within the tradition are really about connecting to that energy and accelerating the experience of awareness um, and introduction to the true nature of our mind, which we would call Buddhahood and enlightenment. Okay, one of the things I'm really interested in, Lama Rod, as an African-American queer man who's very out, you're very public with Uh your gender and sexual identity, race identity, you've talked about in various writings separating out the Tibetan cultural influences Uh in Vajrayana so that Uh we can practice the essence without the Tibetan cultural forms, which are very hierarchical in terms of the relationship of the teacher to the student, how do we make those separations without distorting the essence of the teachings in some way? Well, you know, one of the ways that we do that is by examining the roots of Tantra in Southeast Asia. You know, so we just go back to a period um, before Tibetan Buddhism, and we begin to look at how the communities were forming. Um, and many of the tantric communities were actually forming and practicing outside of monastic uh, communities. Um, so these were early communities of lay practitioners who lived loosely um, within practice communities. 
um, who many of whom would practice alone and would on occasion come into community to practice. Um, you know, they would practice uh, the Ganeshapra or the Sacred Feast, or they would chant or do other kinds of practices together. And that's actually what I'm more interested in examining. Like, what did Tantra look like before, before Tibetan Buddhism, and particularly before the, the organization of monasticism um, and how monasticism actually impacted um, the practice of Tantra? Because the way that many of us are introduced to, to Tantra Buddhism or Vajrayana um, or Tibetan Buddhism is actually through the lens of monasticism. And many of us are not monastics. I would say a great majority of um, practitioners are not monastics. Um, and so looking at my identity as, you know, a queer, black, um, American, cisgendered man, it's really important for me to, to ask myself how how can I create a space for myself within this practice? Because I'm more than just a practitioner. I'm a member of uh, the clergy class, you know? So I specifically have um, a, an aspiration and also a mandate in many ways to make um, my uh, tradition accessible. Um, but I have to first and foremost make it accessible to my life and and my needs, um, and the things that I care about and are passionate about. Um, and so that's, that's the work that we're doing, and this is all just an experiment right now. So I don't have a guidebook or a textbook at all to guide me in trying to figure out how to do this, but what I am being guided by, however, is my practice, you know? So looking at the impact of the choices that I'm making um, in terms of how to think about rituals and practice and then looking at the, how that, um, looking at the results of that in a real direct way. And then I begin to, to collect that data and then begin to make other decisions about how to proceed forward. Um, I think radical dharma was, for me, one of the first efforts that I made um, in, um, in trying to figure out what my voice was. And then because of radical dharma, I have a, a, a deep sense of, my voice within the Dharma world. And now I'm moving forward to understand what my life can look like um, within Tantric Buddhism, fully expressed in every aspect of my life. Um, and this is really important. Now I always say, you know, that Tibetans, you know, they got the opportunity to express their whole lives and culture within their practice. And I get that right as well. Okay, I'm very inspired by what you're saying. When it comes to expressing your whole life as you, mm -hmm. your voice, your body, mm -hmm. what have you had to say, no, this part of the way I was mm -hmm. trained in Tibetan Buddhism doesn't mm -hmm. fly with me. This doesn't work with me. Yeah. What have you had to reject? Oh, so many things. And the, the things I've had to reject, I find to be very superficial, but other people view it very differently. Um, for instance... I gave up wearing, wearing robes, you know, as a teacher. Um, and I, you know, remember when I was running um, my Dharma Center in DC um, in 2012 to 2014, when I was making that decision, you know, people were very upset, you know, because they actually 
didn't know how to relate with me if I weren't, if I wasn't wearing robes, you know? And at that point, you know, I just gave them a really straightforward, you know, kind of, not ultimatum, but I challenged them to actually start relating to me, not the robes, you know? And to challenge them to understand that it is the expression of the Dharma from the teacher and how the teacher embodies Dharma, that's what we should take refuge in, not any superficial wearing of robes and clothing um, that, that, you know, signals someone to be a teacher. So that was the first thing that I did. The second thing, I just started privileging my personality. You know, I, you know in every tradition of Buddhism, there are ways that one offers Dharma, one, you know, ways that one gives a Dharma talk and teaches. And I started breaking away from that model. I wanted to have fun, you know, when I was teaching. What? I wanted, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? I know. I know it, it's like radical, you know. Like I wanted to talk about life. I wanted to talk about pop culture. I wanted to talk about the things I struggle with. I wanted to talk about like all kinds of stuff because that's where we live. Um, I remember years ago, years ago before actually right at the beginning of my, you know, entrance into meditation practice, I remember there was um, a Buddhist teacher, a nun. Um, I think it was Venerable Rabina. Um, and she, she had this, she had um, a documentary, um, I think that was produced, I think in the late 90s or early 2000s. And in the documentary, I think she was teaching in New York City um, during this period. She would give Dharma talks like flipping through like people's magazines. Um, and I was so influenced by that. I still have that image in my mind. Like she would go pick up the magazine at the newsstand, come to the Dharma talk and just start reading through it during the Dharma talk and just start talking about pop culture and how Dharma related to pop culture. But she was like, this is where you are. Like you're in culture, you're in you're in this stuff. I want to bring Dharma to where you are. And that is what I try to do, you know, in my Dharma teaching. Um, another thing that I do um, is also centering justice in, in the work that I do. Um, I don't just want to talk about Dharma. I want to talk about Dharma as we are experiencing it within the relative. Um, and so often our teachings are so ultimate, so absolute within these spaces. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. And I want to applaud that, you know, but I firmly believe that I can't experience the ultimate until I begin to work with the relative. So I need my dharma to meet me in the relative world. That means I need my dharma to talk about identity. I need my dharma to talk about politics. I need my dharma to talk about sex and gender I need my dharma to talk about Donald Trump. I need my dharma to talk about ice raids, you know, and the Me Too movement, all of that, you know, and that's where I place my dharma. And then working through those issues, this is how we begin to experience these, these ultimate, these absolute experiences. Um, I mean, those are just a few things. Um, but I think the biggest thing, and I think this is something that maybe it was out of my control, um, but the biggest thing that I experience um, as kind of being radical and new is that I teach in all traditions. 
you know, or more, more precisely, I teach at center than all tradition, you know? So um, I teach a lot in inside Theravada spaces. Um, I teach in men um, centers and monasteries. And I also teach on occasion um, in Tibetan Buddhist centers. Um, but Tibetan Buddhist centers are like rare, ironically. Um, I'm mostly teaching in insight and Zen centers um, around mm-hmm. the world. I'm curious, why have you decided to keep the term Lama as part of your name? Yeah, well, I want to reclaim that. Um, you know, and I, when I say reclaiming, what I mean is that first and foremost, I earned it. You know, and I need people to understand that when I, when I use the term Lama, when I'm called Lama, I earned that title. You know, I didn't name myself Lama. I didn't just wake up and say, oh, I'm a Lama now. I went through the three-year retreat. I studied, you know, for almost 20 years now. You know, I have earned the right to, to situate myself as a teacher. And this is even more important as a Black queer teacher because being both Black and queer in this country, I am perpetually devalued and mistrusted and misunderstood. You know, um, one of the things that I've had to do, you know, in my work in Dharma is to over-excel, over-achieve, you know. I don't necessarily identify as an overachiever, you know, but in order for my work, my Dharma, and how I present myself to be taken seriously, I have to come in with a load of credentials, you know. So I needed to be in three-year retreat. I needed to have you know, a master's degree from Harvard. I needed to have books and articles and podcasts and all this stuff. People need to see that I'm not a joke, you know, because it's so easy for me to walk into a space and for people to be like, oh, who in the hell is this guy? You know, what kind of Dharma teacher is, you know, this guy, you know, I usually walk in, I'm black and, you know, I walk in usually to a Dharma talk and I have no idea what the Dharma talk is supposed to be about. So usually the first minute of the Dharma talk is me asking someone what I'm supposed to be talking about. I mean, so like all of this can get really shaky, <laughs> you know, um, for folks. Um, and they're, you know, taking me seriously. Um, and so, but I need, I, I have to claim that and own the title Lama because it signifies that I have put in the work to be on the, on the teacher's cushion. You know, and for, again, for people of color, for queer people, for trans people as well, we need our credentials and our work to be recognized um, because it's so easy not, it's so easy for us not to be recognized in the Dharma world and in the society in general, not just the Dharma world. Lamarad, can you tell me a bit about the process you had to go through to enter into the Vajrayana as a black queer man and Mm -hmm. find the space for you in it? Like, what did you have to do? What kind of inner process did you have to go through? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I just felt like, I felt like Vajrayana chose me. And Mm -hmm. when it chose me, 
I thought, wow, this is exactly what I've been looking for my whole life. So it was, it was like re- coming into practice was like remembering something that I'd forgotten, but something that I knew really well, but it just kind of escaped my mind. And then it came back and I was like, oh, there you are. You know, and so that, that inner process, initially in my practice, I didn't really have a process. I just kind of fell into it, you know, um, but moving deeper into the systems, like actually moving deeper into a monastery environment where I had to move in order to begin uh, the three-year retreat process, that, that, was, that was a moment, that was a period where I really actually had to start you know, really thinking deeply and doing really, you know, critical practice around how I was being asked to assimilate into a culture, into a Tibetan culture, which I felt very at odds with, you know. Now, I say this not to say that, like, there's anything wrong with Tibetan culture. That's actually not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that I already had a culture, you know, mm-hmm. so I already had had a culture. I already had history, and I worked really hard within a super homophobic, anti-black country to claim that culture for myself. And so, when I came into the monastery, it was as if I was being recolonized mm-hmm. with another culture, a culture of of another community of people of color. You know, so my problem wasn't with the culture, but I just said, "Oh, I have a culture." already you know so thank you but no thanks (laughs) you know um so when i went into training particularly when i went into three-year retreat i just felt as if i was wearing a costume you know i didn't i didn't really jive with like changing my name to 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 to, uh, to a tibetan name um i had to have one during my training but after that i kind of gave it up because i didn't know who that person was i knew who rod was you know, and I was beginning to understand who Lama Rod was. Um, so, so that, you know, that process, you know, the, that I went through, it was really about just staying very clear about who and what I was, but coming into a Dharma practice that I struggled to channel through who and what I was, you know, and that is how I was able to kind of occupy the space of being authentic, you know, um, and being myself. And I think ultimately that's all I'm trying to do is to be myself, you know, to, to inhabit my body, to inhabit the culture that I come from, to inhabit race, to inhabit gender, you know, to see it as being very important, but also to see the illusion of it at the same time. And, you know, the illusion and the reality of identity, you know, is important for me to, to hold both of those views. You know, um, it is not my path to privilege one view over the other, but to hold both views at once. Um, and that was really ultimately why I came, with, you know, the kind of clarity I came into, um, you know, deeper into my practice. Now, you know, I asked you, Lama Rod, what about Tibetan Buddhism, the Tibetan cultural trappings, did you have to reject? And equally, I'm curious about your own cultural upbringing in the Black Southern Church, 
that you mm-hmm. wanted to maintain and keep intact yeah. as part of your authenticity and how you've done that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, initially what I think about is our, the black oral tradition um, and communication style within black communities, which are derived from um, early, you know, kind of like West African um, communication styles. Um, You know, when I was growing up, talking shit was a practice that um, deepened our um, belonging to the community, Mm. you know. So from the outside, people would look at that and say, oh, that's so mean, that's harsh, that's inappropriate. But for us growing up, it was how we identified each other. That's how we... um, it's how we determine who was safe and who we could trust, you know? So that kind of communication style, I bring directly into my Dharma, you know, within Dharma circles, of course we have the, the eightfold path and one part of one of the, and one of the things along the eightfold path is appropriate speech, you know, and that can get really rigid, you know, particularly in a Dharma culture that's dominated by white folks and um, Asian teachers and Asian practitioners, you know, and it can seem especially rigid for those of us coming out of a black community where speech was very playful, it was very direct, it was very colorful. Um, And I know, you know, I know people get really shocked, mostly white people get really shocked by the way that I talk, but for many people of color, particularly black folks, it is inviting. It is something that they trust you know, from me. Um, I also, you know, from how I was raised, I also really value community. And a lot of Dharma communities don't actually understand what community is. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a Black neighborhood, you know, as well as a Black church in the South. And that was necessary because we had to live together. We had to worship together because of systematic oppression. Like we had to be together in order to survive the system. We had to survive the Klan. We had to survive neo-Nazis. We had to survive Jim Crow. We had to survive um, the remnants of, you know, slavery. You know, like all that we had to survive together. And so we formed, you know, this kind of community where people were really relied on one another, where we really engaged with one another. That was hard you know, I'm not saying it never happened, but I, I want to say it was hard for us to exclude people, to really like marginalize people and put people out of the community because we knew that that often meant death um, for members of the community. So I want, I really, I embrace this idea of like a really intimate, close community, but it's something that I see, I don't see a lot of, um, you know, in, in Dharma communities. You know, and then a third thing that I'll just briefly mention is, you know, from my community, from my church, especially, I, I, I embrace this, this, um, I would call, um, this sense of struggle, um, Hmm. and also related to struggle resiliency, you know, like I was raised to struggle, you know, which, Mm -hmm. which is to say I was raised to work. I was raised to understand that usually I'm starting from the bottom. And so I have nowhere to go but up. Um, so I'm used to work. I'm used, I'm, I come from a family where everyone worked very hard, several jobs, 
you know, um, where people sacrifice so much so that, you know, my generation could have everything that we needed, you know, and it's hard to have this kind of attitude of struggle within white dominated songs right now um, because it's, you know, everyone is so interested in comfort. And I was born into a situation where I was never comfortable. You know, I'm never comfortable. That doesn't mean I'm unhappy, you know, but it means that, like, I know that I'm in this really tense situation moving in the world. And I, I actually remember that and I bring that into my practice and that informs how um, I teach Dharma. Mama Rod, I want to be a little more confessional with our audience here for a moment okay. and share that I myself uh, studied and taught within a Vajrayana meditation community for close to 15 years. And one of the things that was always confusing to me was how to relate to guru devotion. You talked about it as one of the skillful means of this rapid path. How to sort out what aspect of being devoted to the guru teacher is mm -hmm. true for me and what aspect is part of a Tibetan patriarchal inheritance where the mm -hmm. teacher is up on the throne in the front of the room and you give yourself mm -hmm. over totally. So sorting that out has been very, very difficult for me. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, absolutely. I um, and that this guru model has been something I've been thinking a lot around and about. Um, I think so from my perspective, um, for me, guru devotion is first and foremost about how the guru, how this teacher is influencing me to trust my own practice um, and to trust myself. Um, and that was something that I sensed early on um, in my practices around guru. So we have a practice in Vajrayana called Guru Yoga. And traditionally, it's a very early practice that we do as a way to introduce us to the, you know, to the Vajrayana path. Um, and so going to that early guru practice, it was just really startling for me because I wasn't raised to trust anyone, including a guru or a teacher or even a minister. Like, I, I always had to reserve something um, because it always felt dangerous to really, like, trust people. Um, and so as I continue this practice, I really begin to see that the guru, so the, the guru as this person has this ability to mirror back my own wisdom, back to me, my own devotion, or rather my own compassion, my own love, my own kindness, you know, and so forth. And I just kind of felt like that was what I was taking refuge and that was why what I was devoted to. I was devoted to the ways in which the guru was showing me something about myself that was incredible. Um, my relationship to the actual teacher themselves, you know, I had to understand early on that the teacher was human. You know, but there were aspects of the teacher's mind that functioned as a mirror that kept showing me things about myself that I could start trusting and start loving and celebrating, you know? So my devotion was both to myself but, and also to the mind of the guru. My devotion necessarily wasn't to, you know, um, the humanity 
of the teacher, you know, which I saw as being fallible, quite honestly. You know, I saw particularly my group teacher, you know, making all kinds of mistakes and later on learned that there were so many other mistakes that I had no idea about in the beginning of our relationship. And that was deeply hurtful and it was a tough period for me to move through. But at the end of the day, I realized that I had always been taking refuge in what my teacher has been showing me about these innate qualities in my own experience, you know. And so I actually learned how to fall back into being held by these aspects of my life and my mind that my teacher has shown me. You know, I didn't have any doubt necessarily in the Dharma um, because I knew that for me, the Dharma wasn't the problem. It was simply our struggle to embody the Dharma. That's where we could get into trouble, you know, and no matter how enlightened and realize someone may be, they're still, show, they're still showing up and manifesting within samsara, you know, and that enlightened beings still have to have a relationship to their ego in order to be in a relationship to us so they can teach us, they can guide us, they can offer us instruction. Um, so it's, I saw all this, this complexity really early on. Um, and I think that, I, who knows, I don't know if I'm right, or wrong, but I do know that like this is something I feel really um, deeply held by, and I do experience. Um, I don't know. I experience a deep decreasing of violence in my own experience, and a deep increase in love and compassion for myself and others. So something has to be working about this. Mm-hmm. One of the things, Lama Rod that I was moved by in this conversation we're having right here is when you said that when you first started getting introduced to the Vajrayana practices, it felt like a remembering to you of something Mm -hmm. that was innate in your body. Your body kind of knew it. And I'm curious if you could share with us some maybe early practice experiences you have that related to the body that felt like a remembering to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think first it was the, uh, awareness of the body practice, and two, that we're just learning how to recognize the physical reality of the body. And that was something that was so radical, but also really familiar, where I would go like, of course, I would be aware of the body. Of course, I can, can focus on these aspects of my physical body. That makes sense. Like, who wouldn't do that? You know, um, but there were, you know, there were practices like tanglen, taking and sending, which is a body-based practice. So when I first started practicing that, I was like, oh, this is so simple. You know, I breathe in the suffering around me and I breathe out this, 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 uh, this enlightened attention, this bodhicitta into the world around me, to the space around me. And I just felt like, you know, I just felt so grateful to have a practice where my whole body, you know, was being invited into the practice. Um, and then there were um, practices around um, um, our system of physical yoga within Tibetan um, Buddhism. And I learned just really basic practices uh, 
as a lay practitioner, and then when I went into three-year retreat, of course, I was introduced to the whole kind of physical aspect of Tibetan yoga. And again, that was something that I felt as if helped to complete um, the cycle of teaching um, for me. Um, Early on, I just, um, like, I think one of the things that I was looking for early on in my practice was somehow to make friends with my body. Um, And I Mm -hmm. came into practice really after, um, well, I came into practice because I was struggling with mental illness Um, and uh, uh, severe depression, um, precisely. And I had started really getting into like, like physical uh, practices. So I was jogging and running and going to the gym um, and doing a little bit of yoga. Um, And I felt as if coming into meditation actually complemented everything that I was trying to do in terms of coming back into my body and using my body as a means to ground my awareness um, within the relative. Um, I mean, so those were some of the practices there. And then over time, you know, from, from the beginning of my practice up until now, I've, I've really gone deeper into the sense of what it means to be embodied as a practitioner and how to engage um, an aspect of embodiment uh, in all the practices um, that we have in the tradition. You mentioned you came to the practice and that you were suffering uh, as a young person mm-hmm. from severe yeah. depression. And mm-hmm. if I can ask you, do you still fall into severe depression or do you feel that since you've been engaged regularly within the Vajrayana practices, that doesn't come up for you anymore? It doesn't, like clinical depression does not come up for me anymore. Um I may have experiences of sadness or hopelessness, but those are just experiences. And I see it very clearly has been very different um, than clinical depression. Um, you know, but for me, clinical depression was, it was uh, something that I could, that I worked with um, without, um, you know, uh, medications and pharmaceuticals. Um, and I used, um, exclusively lifestyle changes, nutrition, exercise, yoga, meditation, um, to work through that. And that was just in my case, but I feel as if so many people need to honestly examine, you know, what they need in order to work with any form of mental illness. And that includes medications, um, both like pharmaceuticals, but also, you know, natural um, modalities um, that are available to us more and more now. And it's even more powerful when we put that into conversation um, with Dharma practice. So I don't believe Dharma practice should be exclusively used for mental health, Mm -hmm. but I think it should be put into conversation with other modalities, including medication. Mm -hmm. Do you have a perspective now on the Mm -hmm. severe depression, clinical depression you experienced that maybe is different in retrospect, how you see it? Yeah. For me, it, it really was, it was chemical, so it was biological chemical, and it was also energetic. Um, and it was something, um, it was an experience that I'd had, I'd had for years. So I, I, I kind of um, realized that 
Um, I was, um, had been depressed for years, even, I guess, since high school or even, you know, before that. And I had come into a relationship with depression maybe about 24, age 24, 25. And that's when I started addressing Dharma. I'm, I'm sorry, that's when I started addressing the depression. And that's also when I started really getting interested in meditation at the same time. Um, so I think bringing all of those modalities together, nutrition, the exercise, the meditation, I'd also been in therapy for a little bit. I think I'd, all that came together to kind of like, kind of pull me through this experience to bring some stuff into balance. Um, I couldn't have done that without the body. I couldn't have done that without the focus on the body and actually starting to take care of my, my physical self. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk more about this embodiment. There's a quote from one of your blog posts. When we feel at home in our bodies, we feel at home in the world. And, you know, I think so many people are uh, drawn. I know I was drawn to deep spiritual practice because I didn't feel at home in the world. I felt like an alien of some kind. And finding my way into the body did help me feel at home in the world. What I'd love to know is for people who have specific challenges feeling at home in their body, maybe it's mm -hmm. because of trauma or maybe it's because they somehow feel that their body won't be accepted in the world because it's a certain mm -hmm. shape, size, or sexual orientation. Talk about how the Vajrayana approach helps you, even if you feel challenged in some way to mm -hmm. be in your body in the world. Mm -hmm. I feel as if Vajrayana has this unique, um, it has a unique process in which we're able to transform the energy of hate and aversion um, into love and appreciation for ourselves and for others. Um, and I think it does that transformation by helping us to understand that we are not our egos, that the ego itself is an illusion and that we are Buddhas. Like we're walking, talking, living, breathing Buddhas in this moment. Um, and practices like deity visualization, for instance, helps us to relate to a more compassionate, more loving, more enlightened uh, expression of who we really are. And for me, that was so important. You know, for instance, we have the deity and female Buddha, Tara, and, you know, I, you know our practices associated with Tara um, partially is about us imagining ourselves as Tara, imagining ourselves as the very embodiment of compassion, um, imagining ourselves as beautiful and radiant and divine and sacred and feminine. Um, these, for me, are qualities of deep healing because they actually bring a kind of spaciousness to my experience of contracting around the sense of self. And so when I go into a deity practice, when I am imagining myself as the deity, I am actually being encouraged to relax. And as I relax, 
my fixation on ego begins to dissolve more and more, and I begin to have the capacity to turn my attention away from the ego into these experiences of wisdom and love and compassion and joy, you know, and those are qualities that are naturally pervasive in the mind. And these are the same qualities that I begin to, you know, more consciously connect to even outside of a deity practice. And so these are things that I rely on now because they've been made um, apparent to me through practice. Um, and so that's how I've slowly, you know, over the years come, come into a deep appreciation of my body. And this is something that I practice all day and every day and all the time. When I go out into the world, you know, I'm a person of size, you know. Um, so I'm a big guy. I identify as fat, you know. And so when I go out into the world, I know that there are images, assumptions, prejudices that are being projected into my body. And I'm able to hold that. And at the same time, I'm able to say, you know, but I'm not that. I'm not these projections. I'm much more than that. I'm Tara or I'm, I'm Chinrezi or I'm a whole, um, you know, list of other deities that I can think about and embody. Um, but I am still in this body. And so my body you know, my, you know, color of my skin, my fatness, everything, everything is an expression of the deity, of a divinity, of a sacredness, of a compassion, of a kindness. And that's how I, I embrace my body now as someone coming from a place of deep, deep shame around body, you know, not just my body, but also the expression of sexuality from this body as well. So this idea that we could meditate with Tara and become Tara, could we actually, mm-hmm. could we actually do that together, Lama Rod? All of us, all of us listening, whatever shape, size, gender, orientation right now, could we do that? No matter how I feel yep. about myself, whatever. We could, let's do it. Let's do it. Guide us through it. Okay. Okay, great. So we'll start just by getting comfortable. You know, just coming into a position that's comfortable for you. And just starting with a few deep breaths, and I want you to breathe through the nose and out from the nose. So breathing deeply into the nose, down into the lungs, the diaphragm, feeling the chest rise, and just releasing that breath again through the nose. And doing that three times at your own pace. And so after our breathing, bringing our attention to our minds and for a moment, reflecting on what it feels like to be the recipient of kindness, of compassion. And you can think specifically about, uh, you know, situations where someone has been really kind and compassionate towards you. And I want you to remember that experience, but even more so, I want you to remember what it felt like for someone 
uh, to express this kindness and this compassion towards you. And imagine that this feeling of compassion, this kindness, is an experience that you begin to feel as warmth within your heart center. And slowly begin to feel that warmth spread throughout the body. So again, this warmth is the energy of compassion that you've generated for yourself having remembered being the recipient of kindness and compassion. So feeling that energy circulating through the body, I want you to, to contemplate Tara. And when I say contemplate Tara, I want you to start telling yourself, repeating to yourself over and over again, I am Tara. I am Tara. And Tara is the female Buddha of compassion. She is often um, portrayed as a young, beautiful woman. She is green in color, adorned with all kinds of silks and jewels. She wears a crown, a diadem, necklaces, and and. Uh, chains of gold. She's wearing really fine, colorful, colorful silks. And she's sitting on a lotus. And she is sitting with her right leg extended as if she is ready to jump off of the lotus to be a benefit to anyone who calls her name. She is glowing with this kind of radiance. And that glow is radiating from her whole body. And that glow, that radiance fills up the entire space around her. So when we say and tell ourselves, I am Tara. Allow ourselves to slowly become Tara herself. We can slowly transform into Tara or in an instant we become Tara. A radiant woman sitting on a, a lotus, green in color, adorned in silks and jewelry, our right leg extended. I am Tara. 
And deities do not appear as solid entities. They are these experiences of energy and light. So our bodies become very lucid, very spacious, very open. It's like our body is like a balloon filled with this air, this energy of compassion. So for a few moments, resting our mind within being Tara in this moment. And now slowly, turning our attention back to our minds, and as you sit as Tara in this energy of compassion, I want you to imagine that you begin to dedicate the merits of this practice out to all beings by saying that may I, as Tara, liberate all beings in the cycle of old age, sickness, death, through the power of my deep, intrinsic compassion. And my compassion is my deep wish of all beings, including myself, that we all may be free from suffering. So in this moment, we slowly begin to let go of our, our identification as Tara. And we come back to ourselves, to whomever we are in this moment, in this life. But as we come back to ourselves, we are remembering that at any point, Whenever we need, we can become Tara. Lama Rod, the fast path indeed. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. What a great practice to introduce our listeners to. Hey, I just have two final questions for you. Okay. One was that I was reading in Tricycle Magazine how along with Justin von Boydas, you have launched a new virtual sangha that's aimed at a type of radical inclusivity. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about it and what you're up to with this. Yeah, absolutely. 
So this new project, this new sangha is called Bhumi Sparsha. And Bhumi Sparsha is the earth-catching mudra that the Buddha initiated upon um, his kind of interest into enlightenment, where he asked the earth to validate his right to be enlightened. Um, and so Bhumi Sparsha is something that uh, Lama Jason and I have been thinking about for a couple of years. Um, and last year, we really started thinking more critically about what this could look like. You know, both of us come out of the Karmakayu lineage, School of Buddhism, um, Tibetan Buddhism, and we were getting really, really frustrated with the amount of violence that we were witnessing, the amount of corruption, the levels of um, hierarchy, patriarchy, misogyny, homophobia, anti-blackness. Um, that we were, you know, we were just, you know, really getting deeply triggered by that. Um, and we decided to think about a way for us to, um, to create something for our students, initially for our students to be a part of where we could continue these teachings, but within a context where there were stronger ethical guidelines and tasks, and also where we would openly and unapologetically center um, the work of justice um, within the teachings. Um, and that gave rise to Bumi Sparsha, uh, and we had our first on-site residential retreat last December um, down in North Carolina. Um, and we called it um, Healing the Heart of the South. So one of our main practices is Chur. And so Chur is a practice of severance. Um, really passed down from, um, from um, Tibetan lineage, but also has roots uh, within India as well. Um, but mostly it was um, Ch is a Tibetan um, practice. Um, and we wanted to have this experiment, which was how do we use Ch to address the reality of racial trauma in the South? Um, so we gathered folks together for a retreat, and one of our, you know, one of the the practices that we did was actually bringing in, you know, the history of racial violence within the area that we were practicing into the practice itself, and then we went out into the world, and we went to a couple of sites um, where um, racial trauma may have occurred. Our racial violence may have occurred, including cemeteries, some abandoned property um, in the area that we were in. Um, and so that's kind of what the, the ethic that we want to continue with in the work, is to always bridge these traditional practices within the tradition with the things that we're facing together as communities and, and as individuals. That is so righteous, Lama Rod. What good work. Okay, last question for you. I heard you're okay. working on a new book that's about yes. love and anger. And I thought, well, that's an yes. interesting combination. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, and so uh, the book is called Love and Rage. It comes out of all the dialogue and frustration that people have brought to me since the 2016 election. Um, and for me, I had no intention of writing a book on anger, um, because I felt that I had nothing to say. 
you know, I may still have nothing to say. It depends on how people receive the book. But um, I wanted to write a book where I didn't just talk about anger, and you know, because I, I don't think people need that book right now. There are plenty of books about anger and working with anger. But Love and Rage is really about the woundedness and the hurts beneath the anger and how we're able to take care or how we should be able to take care of the woundedness beneath the anger in order to have agency over the energy of anger itself. And so when we have agency over anger, then we're much more likely to channel the energy of anger to benefiting um, others and promoting the greater good instead of just responding to anger habitually and creating a lot of harm and violence. Um, this work is rooted within tantric anger uh, within um, Rajana Buddhism, where anger is viewed as, or tantric anger rather, is viewed as an expression of compassion only because of the presence of bodhicitta that helps us to um, um, have a sense of compassion within the anger that we're experiencing. Brianna, well, Rod, I, I just I love what you're up to. I feel really uh, connected with you and your work, and grateful, grateful that we've had this conversation and that you're participating in our Wisdom of the Body series. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. The Wisdom of the Body free online summit takes place between August 12th to the 21st. Come join us. You can find out more at soundstrue.com. Lama Rod Owens is one of the presenters, along with Sean Korn, Reggie Ray, Peter Levine, Carolyn Mace, and many others, 30 presenters in all. And Lama Rod Owens is the co-author of the book, Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation, co-written with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and Yasmin Sayadula. Lama Rod, if people want to find out more about what you're up to with this new virtual sangha and other activities, how do they stay in touch with you? They can um, go to my website at lamarod.com. Um, and for Bumi Sparsha, we have a website, bumisparsha.org. Um, Bumi Sparsha is B-H-U-M-I-S-P-A-R-S-H-A.org. Um, or you can just kind of Google us. Um, but I'm not responsible for any drama that comes up from a Google search about me. All right. Very good. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world 